You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Over the past maybe year or so, I've been beginning this podcast with a quote. Well, today I begin this podcast with a thank you to you all for listening in, for sharing this podcast with friends and family. I am so grateful to Michael Morey for being by my side for each of the past 250 episodes, which has been over the past four and a half years. I could not have hosted this podcast, The Jackson Hole Connection, each week without the commitment and guidance of Michael Morey. And think about this, folks. Michael edits and markets the podcast. Michael has been editing this podcast since it started. So he has listened to every single second of every episode of this podcast. Thank you, Michael. Couldn't have done it without you. And this is my last episode of the Jackson Hope Connection. Since I started this podcast, I never thought I would be going 250 episodes, four and a half years. I really didn't know what I was going to be doing, but I kept it going. And I've loved speaking to every one of the guests. And I've added several items to my list of responsibilities. And now it's time for me to take that time, which I allocate to the podcast and allocate it to some of the other new commitments that I have. I am joyful and sad to call this an end to the Jackson Hole Connection. And who knows, maybe with the added time that I have, I might come up with a new podcast, a new idea might come to life. And we'll just all have to wait and see how the future unfolds. Although this podcast is ending, the episodes are available for listening, remembering, and sharing. Please, if you take some things away from the 250 episodes I've hosted, I ask that you find joy, gratitude, and love in life. Find the opportunity to speak to people with a curious mind. You have a curious mind in the conversation. Speak to somebody that you don't know. Say hello to somebody you're walking down the street and find someone that you want to say, I love you, and share with them regularly that you love them. I'm grateful to you all for supporting me. And now, today's episode, episode 250, and my guest today is Kylie McCormick, who is a Wyoming native, born and raised in Casper, Wyoming, lives in Casper, Wyoming now. Kylie has been building her career in Wyoming after returning from graduate school in the East. And Kylie is a historian, and I connected very strongly with Kylie because I'm a person who loves history, which you'll certainly hear today. And I used to love listening to my grandmother tell stories of growing up on a farm in rural Arkansas, and also listening to my grandfather's stories of growing up during the Great Depression in Mississippi. History is alive within each of us, and Kylie has some stories of her own for you today some of which we had similar experiences being raised in small towns as a religious minority. Kylie also has several stories about Wyoming history to share with you. And one final note before we begin. After recording, Kylie emailed me to let me know she had a date incorrect in the interview. And the date was incorrect for the Johnston County Wars. The Johnston County Wars happened in the 1880s not the 1870s, as she had stated in the interview. And here we go. Kylie, welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. It's delightful to be able to have this opportunity to sit down and talk to a historian because I love history. I so love history. So thank you for your time today. Yes, thank you so much for having me today, Stefan. You're welcome. So we start every episode with a little background, some history about you. So Kylie, where were you born and raised? We haven't all grown up. And how did you land? You don't live here in Jackson. You live in another part of, of Wyoming. You can share that with us. But I'm delighted that we get to talk. So what is your history and background to Wyoming? I grew up in Casper, and that's where I was born and raised. And I wanted to 
get away from Wyoming when I when I went to get my education. So I went all the way to Virginia to a small all-women's university called Collins University. And then I came back home for about a year before leaving again to go to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I earned my master's degree. And then I bounced back home to Wyoming. Wyoming has quite the quite the dry, couldn't get it out of me. And so I was very happy to end up back in Casper. And that's that's where I'm at now. Awesome. And how did your family land in Casper, Wyoming? That's a great question. My mother, she grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri. And my father, he was born in Valentine, Nebraska and raised in North Platte, Nebraska. And they met here in St. Joseph going to college together and, and theater class. And my father, they were working here in Missouri. They had opened up the Bernstein family bakery again and were running that a little bit with one of my aunts in town. And my father couldn't couldn't handle the humidity that it gave him terrible headaches and everything else. So his best man had actually moved out to Casper, Wyoming, and he said, there's work out here in Wyoming. And so my my parents both came and they fell in love and they've, they've been there ever since. Oh, beautiful. And growing up in Wyoming and in Casper, you grew up as as a minority as well. So and in where I grew up in Mississippi, I grew up as a minority. I grew up in a town called Brookhaven, Mississippi. And we were at that time the Jewish family in in Brookhaven. If anybody knew that anybody was Jewish, they just asked for the Abrams family. The Jewish kids were my sister and I. We drove an hour every Sunday to go to Sunday school to Jackson, Mississippi. And my brother as well. So it was my brother, my sister, and and I. So what was it like growing up Jewish in Casper, Wyoming? There is a small Jewish community in Casper, which I was really grateful for. And some who were in similar age range as me, but no one in my in my class. And we would get to go to Cheyenne occasionally for things like the Jewish rendezvous that the celebrating Penny Wolin's book of the Jews in Wyoming, that pictorial book that's so well done. I got to go there right about the time I was 10 years old and learn some traditional dances. Whenever we'd come back home to or back to my mother's home in St. Joseph, we would get to attend her synagogue that she grew up in and I'd be surrounded by my aunts and cousins but in Casper there weren't there weren't a lot of us and I was the only one in my class always growing up I think that my classmates enjoyed it because my mom would come in and say well we you're not just getting Christmas you're going to hear the story of Hanukkah too and incorporate some of that into elementary school which was really nice that's beautiful I'm glad that it was embraced and your mom came and did that for for your class. And I went and spoke about Hanukkah to my boys' classes this past <laughs> year, and, and they were super stoked about it. I think that's really important. I will say that there was a shift after my sister's classmates. I have an older sister, just two years older than me, and it's just the two of us. Um, but after her class learned about the Holocaust, and then after my class learned about the Holocaust, we both experienced a surge in anti-Semitism. That was really, really negative. I think that that was, it's really made me think about how we, how we talk about horrific events like genocides and slavery and, and things like that, that we, we need to teach these in a way where it's not going to result in more bigotry or more harassment and more anti-Semitism, which is unfortunately what my sister and I experienced after our classmates learned about the Holocaust, which would have been Right about, I'm forgetting if it was seventh or ninth grade. It's it's in junior high, I think, when we when we did that. Do you feel comfortable sharing what were some of those actions, or how did you feel as though you started feeling some anti-Semitism after the Holocaust was taught? Yes, definitely. But um, we we had our home vandalized with swastikas and mm. a death threat. We had, I've, I had people come up to me and, and call me, pardon, pardon my language, um, call me a kike. And I, I had a lot of my, my friend group just thought that it was funny. I'm, I'm from the generation that really grew up with South Park. 
And that idea of I can make fun of everybody and I can make fun of anything and nothing's off the table. And so things like there weren't enough seats in the car. And so one of my friends said, oh, that's okay. Kylie can ride in the ashtray. And so things like that, that I had to deal with. And then having to tell my friends, I'm not comfortable with this and ending up losing most of my friends from that was a hard experience in high school, but an important one. It taught me how to stand up for myself and to find my voice, I guess. Thank you for sharing, Kylie. I didn't experience quite that level of anti-Semitism, but I appreciate you sharing. And yes, all of the bad things that happen in the world, the genocide around the world in, in history should be taught. And, and it's important that it's a, taught in a fashion that it doesn't reinvigorate the same type of uh, negative feelings. So we don't, it doesn't happen again. Right. And I think yeah. that there, there is an attitude. I know, I don't think that Jackson Hole has quite the same problems that Casper has in terms of, um, we have a very high youth suicide rate in Wyoming in general, but especially in places like Casper. And I, I'm quick to link that to this sort of attitude of nothing matters and I can make fun of anything and the, that jokey sort of approach to horrific history that I think, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. Um, there's a wonderful historian named Doris Bergen, and she wrote a great book called A Concise History of the Holocaust. And she opens it with the metaphor of a house burning down. And she says that several things are required for a house to burn down. But you need the environment that is conducive to it, that's dry. And she says that World War II created an environment that was conducive to this violence and accepting that violence. She said you need a spark to set it off. She calls the Nazi regime and Hitler that spark that set it off. But you also need dry timber. And I think that that dry timber is something that we often overlook in our in our culture and our society. And that is that those jokes that everybody thinks are just harmless, that it's just a joke and it's not that big of a deal, but that they actually are a big deal once we get those other two elements in there, that it makes it makes people more willing to accept the targeting and murder of certain groups of people. And we need to be very mindful of our dry timber in our, our communities and work hard to clear it out, just like Good, good forest management. <laughs> mm -hmm. Indeed. I, I appreciate that assimilation and, and the recommendation of the book. I have not heard of Doris Bergen's book, so I, I will certainly look that one up. And, and Kylie, you are a historian and you're a Wyoming historian, and that's where you place a lot of your energy and time. And again, as I said in the introduction, I love history. I grew up around my grandparents who my grandfather was born in 1904. I think my grandmother was about 1912 and just hearing, just think about, I mean, he died at 96 and the, the, the changes that he saw growing up. So I am thrilled to learn a little bit about Wyoming history, what you have been learning and teaching and talking about throughout the state. So where do you want to begin? What do you want to talk about for some Wyoming history, Kylie? Yes, definitely. I I started digging into Wyoming history when I moved back home to Casper in 2017. And that is was the oh, what is it? The 100 year anniversary of the Wyoming state flag. And at the time I was struggling a little bit with my health and so I was substitute teaching to have a little bit of flexibility there and I needed something because I was used to doing all of this great research and digging into history and so I needed something to keep my mind active and I found myself in the Natrona County Library looking through a, back, a book of Casper memories and there I found an anecdote by the woman who designed our flag, Verna Keys. Spelled differently, but keys, keys. And she was talking about designing this flag. And she said that this woman named Grace Raymond Heber was responsible for flipping the bison that originally that she had the bison facing the other way on our flag hmm. to represent freedom. But Grace Heber preferred it with the bison hitched towards the flagstaff as it flies today. And that's that's the way it was. I had run into Grace T. Bird while I was working on my master's degree. I was writing a 
article about women office holders in the West and wanted to write about Esther Hobart Morris as the first woman justice of a peace in South Pass City. But in order to write about Esther as a judge, you have to first deal with this controversy looming over her as to whether or not she had anything to do with bringing suffrage to the territory and influencing William Bright to introduce that bill in 1869. I didn't want to deal with that controversy. I wanted to deal with her as an office holder and a judge. And so well, I just sort of accepted what the secondary sources were telling me about that story and what the standard, what, what this published standard is today on woman suffrage in Wyoming, which is, oh, she didn't even know William Bright until after that legislative session. She had nothing to do with it. And Grace Raymond Hebert is the one who, who made it all up. And she was a, a suffragist desperate for a heroine who needed to put a woman into that oversized role. So here I was running into Hubert again, and she's changing our flag. And I thought, well, just who did this woman think she was? And so I started digging into her files. She has over 80 boxes at the American Heritage Center down in Laramie. And as of March of this year, I have photographed all of her files that have not been digitized and digging into her correspondence and digging into the work that she's done. I've made some really incredible discoveries and have really found that this woman has gotten quite a bad rap that she doesn't doesn't quite deserve. Well, why does she get a bad rap that she doesn't deserve? Well, I think that she is, um, she was a very powerful woman at a time where not a lot of women had power and she had a lot of institutional power behind her and a lot of um, support from men and women in power in Wyoming. And she, she accomplished a lot of things. But when you accomplish a lot of things, you are also going to be stepping on some toes and doing things that other people disagree with and don't like. And so she, she gained a little bit of a reputation, especially after she passed away. Hmm. Um, she's done wonderful things for our state. She built up the university library from about 500 books to over 60,000 books. As I mentioned, she's responsible for us having the state flag that we have. She's the one who sponsored that contest while she was state regent of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And she wrote some of our first child labor laws. I, I often say that if there's a pie baking in Wyoming, she had her thumb in it. Hmm. What helped people have a little bit of relevance here of this time frame of when she was doing this work. So when was she born? When did she pass away? And when was this time frame that she was doing a lot of this work? Yes, definitely. She was born in 1861 in Iowa, and then she moved to Wyoming when she was 21 years old in 1882. And she was working for the general surveyor's office as one of 42 draftsmen. She wasn't the only woman in the office, but she was the only woman working as a draftsman. So that means that she was basically a cartographer, that she was taking the surveyor's notes and drawing the maps of what would become the future state of Wyoming. Hmm. She was there in 1889 and sat on the committee when the first gathering of Wyoming women got together to advocate for woman suffrage in the state. And she helped to draft their resolves that they were only going to elect pro-suffrage delegates to the Wyoming Constitutional Convention. She was then after birth, she moved to Laramie and became essential in the building up and establishment of our state university, sat on the board of trustees for many years, and she worked until her death in 1936. And so it it really started off as a hobby, me looking into Seabird and the flag and just something to keep myself interested. And then in 2019, I decided that I was going to do something with this that my friends at the National Historic Trails Interpretive Center had asked me if I had anything I had been researching that I would be able to do a presentation on. And I said, well, I've got this thing on the Wyoming flag that I've been working on. So I put that together in a presentation and I decided, you know what? What if I try and tour this around the state? And what if I make some greeting cards and some stickers where I can sell them at my presentations? And so I started offering it to libraries, um, Crooks County up in Sundance and Hewlett were some of the first libraries to hire me and bring me up there. 
And it's been a lot of fun. I didn't know in the fall of 2019 that COVID was about to happen as Mm. I jumped in full time into being a public speaker. But I've been very fortunate to be able to make it work. And from what was originally designed, so that our flag, when was that officially stated, hey, this is our flag? The contest for the flag was in the fall of 1916, and then it was signed into law on January 31st, 1917. Oh, beautiful. Governor John Kendrick. Okay. And has our flag design changed in any way since it being signed into law in 1917? Yes, it has. That is actually when the bison was changed. If you look at the description of the Wyoming flag, Grace Heber, she is responsible for that technical description. And you can definitely tell because of the word buffalo, the designer of her flag, she always referred to the animal as a bison, um, except for in one speech that she gives in her hometown of Buffalo, Wyoming, where she calls it our buffalo. Hmm. Really sweet. But she always calls it a bison. Their letters back and forth are a little, a little tense and biting, especially Verna Keys. She was a young woman when she designed the flag. She had just graduated from the Art Institute of Chicago and she had won a contest. And so she was feeling like a very, a, a previous contest with the Burlington Railroad. She was feeling like a very successful artist. And then here's this older woman coming in and changing her design and hey mm-hmm. what right do you have to say over this but grace hebrew i think she she just preferred that bison with his nose into the wind um, okay so she didn't include any kind of technical description as to which direction the bison faces and so it was when the flags were first manufactured for the two gentlemen responsible for the law john kendrick and um senator william daly and Grace Hebert, she had Verna make the flag or manufacture the flags from the Chicago George Lauder Company. And those flags were made as Hebert preferred with the bison towards the staff. Hmm. I love it. So what other notable items that you've learned in your research about Wyoming history that if we weren't talking to you today, we wouldn't know? To put you on the spot. (laughs) Yes. Well, I actually found, (laughs) I have something very exciting to share with you, actually. Oh, please. And that is that in 1902, the man who introduced the woman's suffrage bill for us, William Bright, he was in Washington, D.C. at a national woman's suffrage convention for a pioneer evening. And on stage were all of these Pioneer women who had these oversized, amazing roles in the movement, including Susan B. Anthony. And Susan B. Anthony actually recognized William Bright from the crowd, which is quite remarkable all in itself, that she she knew him by sight. And she called him up onto stage and asked him to share why he introduced that bill. And he gave credit to Esther Morris. He said that. He knew next to nothing about woman suffrage before he met her and that she loaded him down with it before he went to the legislature, um, which are really key words there. And so for me, this is definitive evidence that Esther Morris, she is the first successful advocate of a lasting woman suffrage in the United States and that we have it direct from the man who introduced the bill himself, that that's where his inspiration was coming from. This also does mean that Esther Morris, a woman who is known to have been anti-slavery and to have her neighbors and possibly she had helped out on the Underground Railroad, according to um, Catherine Swim Cummings' research and her excellent book on Esther Morris. That does mean that Esther Morris would be responsible for making that really racist argument that convinced William Bright. He was a pro-Southern a Democrat who was against the 15th Amendment, which would recognize Black men's right to vote. And he advocated against that amendment in South Pass City. And what, whenever he was asked about why he believed that woman suffrage was just and something that needed to be done, he said that it was because he believed his wife and his mother were more capable and intelligent than the recently enfranchised Black men. 
Mm. So that's it's a good um, balance around Esther Morris that we get to to really look at her as in a complete picture. So help me unwind this a little bit. William Bright, he was he a U.S. senator from Wyoming? So he was a he he was born in Virginia and Uh he did serve for the Union during the Civil War. And after the Civil War, like several, several Southerners, he came west. In fact, Wyoming is full of Southerners in 1868 and 1869 when we are becoming a territory. President Grant, he appointed an entirely Republican executive branch for our new territory. So our everybody was Republican at the at the start in the executive branch, like Edward M. Lee, who was a secretary for the Secretary of State, and they um, determined that they were going to, the 15th Amendment had not yet been ratified, and they said, but it's the law of the land and the territories, and we are going to live up to it. And so they actually sent a militia to South Pest City to serve as a protection for the Black men who were there, about nine Black men, I believe, were able to vote in that 1869 election. Mm-hmm. And they 1869 election was determining who was going to serve in our first territorial legislature. And it was entirely Democratic, that there were no Republicans elected. And the Democrat Party, they were the pro-South, pro-slavery, anti-15th Amendment Party in 1869. And that's who William Bright, he was a he was a Democrat. He was elected to that first territorial legislature and served as president of the council which would be the head of the Senate today. Okay. And then Esther Morris, you mentioned her with having involvement with Underground Railroad. Was she a Wyoming resident? At the time, she had moved to Wyoming. She had been living, I believe, in Illinois. I think that's where she was coming Mm -hmm. from. But she had spent about eight months, actually, in New York City, living with her niece, Libby. And Libby was working as the private secretary to Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth mm. Cady Stanton while they published the nation's first suffrage newspaper called The Revolution. And it's really wonderful. A lot of those, if you look at the first edition of The Revolution, the lays out the platform of the women's rights movement. And a lot of those platform planks are actually incorporated into the laws that are passed by that first territorial legislature, that they pass a law where they recognize married women's right to hold property. They recognize women's rights to their children that today it's sort of weird for us to think about. But in the 1800s, a woman had no rights to her her children. And so if there was a divorce or her husband left her for some reason, he had the entire legal claim over over their children together. And so this recognized women basically became independent. We were no longer dependent on our husbands or fathers in Wyoming. We were recognized as full citizens. And they did some things that you know, you've got these great ideals, but aren't necessarily always followed through. Um, one of those was an equal pay law in 1869 for male teachers and women teachers to be treated or to be paid the same amount, which is really quite incredible. And I think there were some communities who embraced that and did that. And then there were other communities who said, oh, but the, the man needs to be bringing home more money, mm-hmm. obviously, and, and paid their male teachers more despite that law. Mm, I love this. Thank you. Kylie, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors. And then I want to learn more, a little bit more about South Pass because you've mentioned South Pass several times. So we'll be right back. Oh, definitely. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Kylie, 
Welcome back. Learning so much about the importance that Wyoming as a territory and its citizens had on um, women's suffrage and uh, equal rights for women in, in the history of our country. This is fascinating. And several times you've mentioned South Pass. Give us some background about what South Pass is, where it is, um, but what was the significance and what is South Pass now? Yes, definitely. South Pass at the time would have been one of the major cities in, in the area that right about 1869, there were about 5,000 people in Denver, Colorado. And if you're looking at all of the surrounding cities, um, Miner's Delight and Atlantic City and South Pass, you're looking at roughly the same, a little bit less of population in that area. And so you can imagine the people who are moving there. Yes, they thought that this might become one of the major American cities in, in the 1860s, that there was a lot of hope for Wyoming to grow these great big cities like they were growing back east. And uh, the big draw to South Pass were, uh, were the mines, the, the gold mines. There's the Clarissa mine that you can still go and tour through today. And there are some, I've, I've heard some rumblings as I've been touring around the state and sharing my research. There have been some of my audience members who tell me that there's people out there who are staking claims today and who are still out there trying to, to find gold. South Pass City, it did not go the way of Denver. It did be, end up um, going through its bust and just about everybody left the town except for one family. The, oh, let's see if I can remember their names all of a sudden ran away from me. But about one family stayed in, in South Pass City, um, Janet Sherlock Smith and her sons. It was interesting. She, she became blind in her old age. And one of her sons, he also lost his eyesight in a mining accident. And I often think about them as South Pass became this ghost town and whether or not it would be easier to stay in a ghost town where you don't have a lot of people, but you're very familiar with it as a disabled person who is losing your eyesight or who has lost your eyesight, or if it would be better to move to a larger city like Cheyenne or something like that, that would have more people and more, more accessibility. Um, it's just, it's interesting to me to think about the, the Janet Sherlock Smith family and mm. their decision to stay. Do they if still have descendants? Visit, I'm not sure about that. Possibly in the area. I hope so. Mm. They do have, if you go and visit South Pass today, it is a state park and I recommend everybody go and check it out. And a lot of buildings have been reconstructed. Esther Morris's cabin has been reconstructed, but it is not the floor plan of when she lived there. It's just a, a structure that is in the general area where we believe her cabin was. But there are some original buildings, and all of those original buildings are associated with the Janet Sherlock Smith family, like their, mm. their hotel and their dry goods store and things like that. Now, if South Pass, when Wyoming was a territory, was such a booming community, how did it compare to, how did Cheyenne compare to it? And then how did Cheyenne end up becoming the state capital? And correct me if I'm wrong, for a long time, Cheyenne was the largest populated community, in the, and then it became Casper, but it could have been some other places in between that were larger than those places at some time. Yes, definitely. Well, Cheyenne, it's quite an interesting city. I think that they definitely earned the nickname Magic City huh. because one day Cheyenne wasn't there and the next day it was. That the railroad came through and pretty much instantaneously there was a city. What's been fascinating to me is that as, I, as I've gotten more into Wyoming history, um, it's sort of a similar story as my academic career where I I was looking at slavery and religion in the United States and looking at Christianity and the impacts of the Second Great Awakening. And then I said, well, what about Jewish slaveholders? And now I'm finding myself that I'm at the point in my research in Wyoming where I'm saying, well, what about Jews in Wyoming? What, what were Jewish people doing here? And as I dig into the, the history of Cheyenne, Jewish people were there immediately. They play a major role in um, establishing the town councils, establishing the volunteer fire department, 
um, all of these community services and building up businesses and taking part in all of the commerce. And so there's a really rich Jewish history in Cheyenne that helped to build up that city. I believe that it is still the largest city in Wyoming, right? About 60,000. I think they bounce between 60 and 70,000 people today. In Casper, we're usually between 50,000 and 60,000 people that we're, we're pretty close in size. Mm-hmm. And as far as becoming the capital, I believe it's because it was the first stop on the railroad and that um, Governor Campbell, he stepped off the rail. This is an anecdote. I don't know if um, I don't have any any real evidence or to back this up yet. But the story that I've always heard is that he stepped off of the train and said, well, this will make a great capital. And that's how it it became the capital. Fascinating. I heard a tidbit for the railroad going through Wyoming, that there's all of these towns that you look like at I-80 and all those towns along I-80. And and that's basically pretty much about where the railroad goes. But you have these towns that were created. And it's like, why, why is there a town out here? And it was, what I heard was, it's where the railroad had stops to get more water and fuel for the train. Yes, and even I go even earlier than the railroad. That if you if you're looking at the south of our state, you're looking at the Overland Trail, and if you look at what comes through Casper, where the railroad and the interstates come through, um, and Central Wyoming, you're looking at the Oregon, California, Mormon, and Pony Express trails. And so huh. these migration trails are really what becomes our future interstates, highways, and railroads. And going even earlier, those trails, they were animal trails and they were Native American trading and hunting trails. And those really become our, our main highways and roads. I think the, the small community of Glen Rock, Wyoming, which is today mostly a, a bedroom community of Casper, that most people just commute into Casper for work if they're living in Glen Rock. But Glen Rock, it was at one point, a more major stop than Casper was, that you had Deer Creek Station there and you had the Upper Platte River Indian Agency there with um, Joseph Bissonette was at the Deer Creek Station and Thomas Twist was at the Indian Agency. And both of those men had at least 25 children each <laughs> and they had Native American um, wives. There was another little Lakota group that was living right in that area. And so you can imagine that there was actually a really bustling community happening right there in the 1850s. And so all of these communities, they grow up. And then eventually, Glenrock, I think it goes through that same path. Oh, the railroad doesn't go through Glenrock first. And so the community really dies down. And then the highway to Yellowstone comes through the Yellowstone Highway and it builds back up. And then the interstate comes that dies back down. Mm. So you see that boom and bust cycle when you talk about the movement of people through our state. Hmm. It's that migration route. Oh, yes. And it's very interesting I think, to think about people as they moved through. Um, it's known as the largest unforced migration in the history of the world. About half a million people, 500,000 people um, walked through the state in, from the 1840s to the 1860s. Wow. Half a million walking. Oh, yes. Most of them walking the entire way. Some of them got to ride or drive the wagon, but most of them walking. Mm-hmm. And Wyoming, you mentioned South Pass is a ghost town and that it's a state park. Is it known to have more ghost towns? Are you aware? I'm not sure if we're if we're known to have more or less, but we do have quite a few around the state. And I I know um Close to me is Jeffrey City, and Jeffrey City is sort of a half ghost town, half active town. And they were around with the uranium mine is how the Jeffrey City really had its big boom and its great big population move for all of that mining. And then once they closed down the uranium mine and they've done some nice work reclaiming the land around there and trying to turn it back into more of a natural habitat, that city has has largely emptied out. And so it's sort of an odd town to drive through that you can see that there's some people who are moving in and trying to take advantage and make opportunities out of it. And then you can also see that for the most part, it's been abandoned. 
Interesting how you would describe it as half ghost, half um, active town. Yes. So it's a weird sort of feeling, I think, when you're driving through. When looking at the history of Wyoming, what was the importance of the ranchers as far as establishing some of these communities and these trade routes in, in, the, in our history? And did they have influence in other ways as well that, that are notable? Oh, yes, definitely. But um, quite, quite a significant history with the ranchers, especially with a lot of the cattlemen who were coming up from Texas and taking advantage of the open range. And then once you have the Homestead Act actually come into Wyoming and you have homesteaders coming in and putting up fences and disrupting that open range, has led to a lot of the early conflicts that we have in the state when we're not talking about the Indian Wars, of course. The Indian Wars are the earliest conflicts that the United States has in in the area. But talking about the Johnson County War in particular is thinking a lot about how we're shifting from open range to these homesteaders coming in. Um, Ella Watson and Jim Arville are great examples of that in Natrona County, that they they come in and they um, they are a married couple and they do what a lot of people do, which is try and cheat the system. They went in and they both applied for land and received their 150 acres in a very nice choice property right on the Sweetwater River. There were some large ranchers in the area who were paying their cattle hands to go out and make those claims so that way they could buy them from them and amass a large ranch in order Mm. to maintain their cattle and maintain their herd, which requires a lot more land than 150 acres for sure. And Ella Watson and Jim Arville, they didn't want to sell out their land. And so their neighbors, they sent them poison pies that they didn't eat. They fed to their dogs and killed their dogs. And Ella Watson, she had purchased some cattle that had been passing through on a cattle drive and they had hoof rot. And so they wouldn't have been able to complete the drives. So she had um, several cattle with different brands on them. And they used that as an excuse to say that she was wrestling cattle and they grabbed up her and Jim and they were apparently just going to try and scare them a little bit. And she was trying to get them to drive down to Cheyenne to prove that her bill of sale was legitimate. And she was known as a a woman who she wasn't going to sit quietly for sure. She was going to tell it how it is. And that that got her into more trouble than she bargained for that night. They took her very close to Independence Rock, actually. If you're standing on the boulder where they were, that you can see Independence Rock from there. And they lynched both her and her husband. Oh. Oh, yes. And so I believe that was in the 1870s. And that was just right before the Johnson County War broke out and the violence just north of Natrona County over the same issues of accusations of cattle wrestling, but the accusations of cattle wrestling were really masks for land grabs that were happening and then poor management of herds with some really hard winters that the cattle barons were starting to get a little bit greedy in Wyoming in the 1870s, that they were putting cattle into the market that were too young and trying to inflate their numbers. And after several hard winters and they weren't able to reach the numbers that the Eastern markets were expecting, that's when they start blaming all of these wrestlers that are around mm. and stealing these cattle. And that's where the cattle have gone, not, not the hard winters and not their poor management of the herd. Mm. And that results in a, in a great deal of violence. And, and that violence is what you're talking about is the Johnson County Wars? Yes, and that's right. Could you expand on what the Johnson County Wars were a little bit more and the time range of that? Yes, definitely. So we're looking at the 1870s in Wyoming with the Johnson County Wars, and we're really looking at a lot of um, government corruption also, that there was an invasion that happened, that they brought in a lot of the former Texas Rangers and people from out of state. They had convinced that they were going to come in here as a, that they needed them as a militia to tamp down these 
wrestlers that were coming and they had a a hit list of people that they wanted them to go after. And some of those people was one of the people at the top of the list was a man named Nate Champion. And he was an outspoken critic of the cattle barons. He was someone who was willing to testify in court against them. And he was at the top the top of their list. And so this invading army, they come up by train from Colorado. And there's evidence that they were supported by not only the Wyoming Stock Growers Association, but also by the um, governor at the time and some of our state senators at the time. And they did things like they knew that the sheriff in Douglas would be very much opposed to this. And so they had him conveniently out of town on a meeting when the train came through Douglas. And then once the train was in Casper, they they got off the train and they started on horseback up towards Buffalo, Wyoming. And that they were on their way to Buffalo when they heard that Nate Champion and a friend were at a ranch nearby. And so they went to, they surrounded him. He had a diary and he writes about they shot and killed his companion and he drugged his companion into the cabin with him. And he's writing this diary about how he's going to try and make a break for it once the sun goes down and that he hopes that he'll be able to make it out there, but he doesn't think that he's going to be able to make it. And he does, he makes his break for it and they, they shot him down dead. And then at that point, the citizens in Buffalo had learned about this invading army and they came to confront them. And so the invaders, they ended up sequestered out on a ranch trying to protect themselves in a defensive position. And they were surrounded by basically the citizens of Buffalo that were saying, we're not, we're not going to allow you to come in here. And yeah. at that point, our governor started to panic. And he is asking for a militia to come in. And they actually, I believe that they had to, that one of our state senators had to like try and go and wake up the president um, in order to get the U.S. militia to to come. They arrested the, the, the invaders and brought them to one of the forts where they were held mostly for the invaders' protection. And most of those invaders that they did not see any sort of legal reproduction repercussions for their actions there quite the event in wyoming history yes yes I, I could listen to you and talk like this all all day long i love it <laughs> i would recommend um reading banditi of the plains it was written by asa mercer he's a he was a journalist at the time and he was absolutely disgusted with what had happened and with what he he was witnessing and so he writes this book and it was banned in wyoming there's a story about a, a wagon full of them being taken out of the state under gunfire and them trying to destroy all copies of this banditi at the plains book but it's i would highly recommend it that his it's quite good. And then John Davis is also, he's a recent historian. He's currently working in Wyoming and he's written a fabulous book on the Johnson County War. Um, and that's the latest scholarship on it. And I would highly recommend that book as well. How do you spell Asa's first name? A-S-A. And it's Mercer, M-E-R-C-E-R. Yes. Okay. And so he wrote that, when did he write that book about the Johnson County he Wars? Right about the same time that it was all happening, um, right after it happened, is when he wrote that book. So and you so can that's, still um, contemporary find with the event. A, you can still find a copy at the library. Yes, you should be able to find a copy in the library. It is a little bit harder to find in Wyoming than outside of the state, or it used to be. I think it's easier today than it than it was. Oh, interesting. Well, have you written a book? I mean, how can people follow some of this work that you that you are doing? Oh, yes, definitely. I, I've written several articles now with wildhistory.org. I started last September as an assistant editor with them. They're a project of the Wyoming Historical Society. I think that if you want to support independent scholars like me or support just scholarship on Wyoming history, that the best way to do that is to join the Wyoming Historical Society, that they are a wonderful institution and they have also given me a great deal of support as I have 
started my own business and started to dig into the history. But I, I received a Homeshire research grant for my work on women's suffrage. And again, working for them as an assistant editor has been really wonderful. So I've written several articles about women office holders in the West, like Ethel Stoner, who had a street brawl trying to enforce prohibition in Cokeville, Wyoming. And there was Elizabeth Wiley in Grable, Wyoming, who she ran for mayor in order to chase the Ku Klux Klan out of Grable in 1924. And she was successful, which is amazing. And she um, served for several, several terms as mayor in Grable. And so I have articles about them and an article about the state flag up on wyohistory.org. I'm hoping to write some more articles about women's suffrage and some of these other topics. I also have several presentations that I do, commissioned presentations. That's how I learned about Glen Rock community that the Converse County Library commissioned me to do a history on Converse County for their libraries. And I have some presentations that I already have done and ready that I have one on the state flag, several on women's suffrage. And I also have one where I do talk about my experiences growing up Jewish in Wyoming and that dry timber of the Holocaust. And I'm happy to drive all over the state and come to your community that the county libraries are a great place. They usually have the budget to hire me and help make that affordable and help me pay my bills, which is important as a historian. I hope everybody knows that even historians need to eat <laughs> mm-hmm. and that I would love to I would love to come to your communities and to to share this history and to talk with you. Well, Kylie, I'm so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing, finding this history and bringing it back to life, um, giving it a life in today's modern time. And if people wanted to reach out to you and connect with you, what is a great way to do that? Oh, yes. You can send me an email at klmhistorian at gmail.com. Or you can check out my website, kyliethehistorian.com, and there is a way to contact me on that website as well. Super. Well, I hope we get to meet someday that you're brought out here to Jackson Hole to speak about Wyoming history or some some other history. And so thank you oh, me too. for your time. Thank you This so has much. been an absolute joy uh, getting to learn more about Wyoming and getting con- to connect with you, Kylie. I appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to share with your audience. And I look forward to keeping up with your podcast. I've enjoyed listening to some of the past episodes. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Kylie. Great to see you today. To learn more about Kylie McCormick and Wyoming's vast and colorful history, visit the JacksonHoleConnection.com episode number 250. I am very grateful to everybody who's helped me keep the Jackson Hole connection on the air, the support that my wife, Laura, gives me every day, the love and caring and, of course, loss of hair and new gray hairs that my boys, William and Lewis, helped me have. And, of course, Michael, who has been the editor and marketing director for so many years. Your time is important, and I am grateful and appreciative of you sharing your time. Get out there and share this podcast. Get out there and do something. Rattle the world a little bit. Be kind to folks. Get out there, have conversations. And who knows? Look for me down in the future, and I'll let you know what comes up next. And signing off for the Jackson Hole Connection, I'm Stephan Abrams. Cheers, folks.